those of you, which is many of you, who are friends of the Book Arts Press will wonder where the spring schedule is, with good reason. It will be in the mail this week, those of you who wish to do advanced planning, the two February lectures are Monday, February 20th, Kit Curie of H.P. Krauss on how to read a rare book catalog, and Thursday, February 23rd, Nicholas Barker talking about the, 30 year, the, the first 30 years of the book collector. Particularly appropriate in that our lecturer tonight, Sandra Kirschenbaum, the founder and editor of Fine Print, will be talking to us about her relationship with that distinguished journal. Sandra Kirschenbaum. Thank you all for braving the snowstorm to come. Being a Californian, I, I'm always impressed by people who brave snowstorms, even though I have lived in the East. But when you're far away from it, it seems more awesome somehow, no doubt like earthquakes do to you. Um, I know that you think I'm going to tell you about 10 years of fine print. Well, uh, I think it's only fair to warn you that I'm actually going to talk about 110 years of fine print. But don't worry, I promise that I won't do it a year at a time. You see, when I started to think about the influences that caused me to have that peculiar urge 10 years ago to start a small magazine about books and bookmaking, the instincts that caused me to respond so viscerally to things printed in ink on paper, I realized that the influences probably did go back 100 years. Moreover, as it turned out, one of the angels that funded fine print was the daughter of a 19th century chromolithographer, and uh, the other was a 19th century photographer. So at the risk of boring you all with fine print roots, I'd like to start the story in 1885. That was the year that my maternal grandfather, Umberto Sabadini, lost his father, a furniture maker in the city of Padua. The family moved to Rome, and to help support them, little Umberto was apprenticed to a lithographer. He showed quite an aptitude for lithographic drawing and color work, and soon he rose to be manager of the plant. My mother still recalls vividly and with pride the beautifully chromolithographed saints and virgins he printed, which were sold as souvenirs to pilgrims at the Vatican. She loved to show them off at school and gain popularity by giving them away to her Catholic girlfriends. Eventually, Umberto set up on his own as a lithographer and printer, and Tipografia Sabadini, though Jewish-owned, enjoyed the patronage of the Italian government. The firm prospered, especially during the First World War, printing forms, documents, and requisitions for the different army ministries and the numerous Italian bureaucracies. 
Indeed, the early 20th century was a golden age for my grandfather and for all the Jews of Italy who prospered and became fully integrated into the cultural and political life of the nation under the benign laissez-faire policies of the king. But all that changed in the 1930s as Mussolini consolidated his power over the Italian government and fell increasingly under the Nazi influence. This led to a virulent anti-Semitism with its attendant horrors. The Sabadini, which roughly translated means Sabbath people, changed their name to Saltellini and went into hiding in a remote villa outside of Rome where they remained for the duration of the war. The family had disappeared and to all appearances, Tipografia Sabadini had been sold to its principal foreman, a certain Signor Martella. Actually, Martella had secretly agreed with my grandfather to be a caretaker of the printing plant as long as the danger and terror continued. After the war, he returned ownership to the family and was handsomely rewarded for his loyal service. My grandfather, Umberto, who was diabetic, died while still in hiding near the end of the war because it was impossible to procure insulin for him. But Tipografia Sabadini continues to this day under the direction of another Umberto Sabadini, my cousin. So though I never thought much about it until I started trying to sort out the impulses that led to the birth of fine print, I like to believe that the printer's ink running in my veins from my grandfather Umberto made me especially sensitive to the beauty, beauty of graphic images and letter forms. But back in 1974, having been a public librarian and a rare book cataloger and auctioneer for the California Book Auction Company, I had no thought of launching a career uh, as a, a publisher or a printer. I was thinking of setting up on my own as an antiquarian bookseller. I had already decided that as a bookseller, Americana and Californiana and modern first editions were really totally boring and not of great interest to me. As I wrote in a notebook at that time, quote, fine printing, illustration, aesthetically beautiful books are what I like. My field will be the book beautiful, unquote. Thus, I may have been quite tuned in early 1974 to a period of flux and change that was occurring in the long and glorious tradition of fine bookmaking. Robert Grabhorn had just died, capping the bountiful spring of fine books that had poured forth for over 50 years from the Grabhorn and Grabhorn Hoyam presses in San Francisco. Grabhorn's collection of typographical books was being integrated into the Special Collections Department of the San Francisco Public Library where Steve Corey, an eager recent graduate of the UC Library School, was working on cataloging the collection. In December of 74, Saul Marks died, and a beacon of fine printing was extinguished in Southern California. Millette Dean, one of the finest book artists in the West, died in January of 75. The Limited Editions Club had begun printing its books by offset. The Spiral Press had closed. The Watergate saga had drawn to its bloodless end with the resignation of Richard Nixon. It seemed like the end of some kind of an era. But at the same time, the seeds of a new era were germinating. Andrew Hoyam was bringing the Grabhorn Hoyam imprint to a close and reorganizing what was to become the Arion Press, bringing in a couple of new apprentices, George Ritchie, today known as a publisher of fine printed works of European literature, and Linnea Gentry, later of Amaranth Press fame. Clifford Burke, who had taken up political printing during the student protests of the 60s, had turned to fine literary printing, and he was teaching and inspiring a crop of fine printers and book artists in San Francisco, including Catherine Clark, today known as one of the foremost hand paper makers in this country, and Kathleen Walkup, now head of the Book Arts Program at Mills College. 
Francis Butler and Alastair Johnston cranked up their old Vandercook Universal 3 in April of 75 and started Poltroon Press, what they called, quote, one of the better known of the more obscure small presses operating in California, unquote. Across the country, several small seminal printing operations in universities had quietly been turning out pods of fine printing enthusiasts who then, like the body snatchers of the cinema, uh, turned up in various cities throughout the country to infect others with the idea that modern books need not be illustrated by a famous French artiste in order to be beautiful and valuable. Jack Stoffaker and William Everson were bringing forth a talented crop of pods at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Harry Duncan was inspiring printers at the University of Nebraska and Kim Merker at Iowa. Walter Hamity, with his strong personality, was able to brand many young people as bookmakers with just one course at the University of Wisconsin. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I don't think anyone was aware, least of all me, that these developments in aggregate were a full-scale book arts fluorescence whose fruits we are seeing today. In fact, I think this period of the mid-70s might be characterized as a time of creative unawareness. There were lots of people making fine books, but they seemed to be working in regional isolation, not really communicating with others across the country similarly engaged, and having difficulty in reaching a wider audience of collectors, librarians, and enthusiasts. Just as I, then a bookseller and lover of fine books, was having very little opportunity to learn about who, what, and where of contemporary bookmaking. And more important, I wasn't even aware that I was lacking this information until one day in March of 74 when Morris Powers, owner of the California Book Auction where I was working, showed me something that had come in the mail. It was a four-page newsletter, rather unsubstantial and poorly printed on cheap paper, called, I believe, something like Arts Reporter, or the Fine Art Letter, or something similar. It was filled with news about the book world, uh, excuse me, about the art world, what artists were working where, the latest appointments to museum posts, tax law for um, uh, art collectors, art thefts, and so on. Not particularly well written, but informative. I flipped it over and checked the masthead. $20 a year. In $1974, don't forget. I gasped. What a hell of a nerve, I said, charging $20 a year for this rag why I could do better myself. And in that moment, it dawned on me that there was no such thing as a book arts newsletter and no such thing as a book arts reporter or a fine book newsletter. Nowhere could an interested book collector or librarian turn to find out what book artists were working where on what or where could a printer or book binder turn to learn on a regular basis about the activities of others in the field. And slowly it grew in my mind with a certain terrible inevitability that I could and should produce such a newsletter for books. If nothing else, three years with the book auction had taught me how to describe books and how to publicize them and write about them. I knew I had dormant editorial skills. I was a word pusher from way back, starting as a child of 10 or so when my father would present me with a business letter he had composed roughly in Italian and ask me to help his, him put his thoughts into English. The fact that I had no business experience and knew less than nothing about the perils of publishing or the mechanics of print production seemed relatively unimportant. I can assure you that without Sandra's certified AA brand 
pure and unadulterated naivete, fine print would never have come into existence. Under the influence of this naivete, I began to test the waters, asking various bookish friends of mine what they thought of the idea. The first of these being Steve Corey, who I had met while, whom I had met while he was working uh, with the Grabhorn Collection at the San Francisco Public Library. I think that Steve's enthusiastic response and offer of unreserved assistance and collaboration were the most important impetus to the launching of fine print. He, along with Linnea Gentry and George Ritchie, the, uh, who were then working at uh, Hoyam's Press, became essential progenitors of fine print. I'm not much of a diary keeper. Mostly when important things are happening in my life, I'm too busy trying to cope with them to take time to write down events and feelings. But I did take a few notes during this period, and I went back and dug through them, and I found that there, there are some interesting notes that do reveal some sidelights into the development of the fine print idea, and I'd like to just read you a few of them. July 29, 1974. 1.30 meeting at Andrew Hoyam's Press, formerly Grab Grabhorn Hoyam. Lively mind, enthusiasm. Wife beautiful with graying black hair, quiet in background. Talk about potential book to be done by Book Club of California. Later discuss my idea, refine press newsletter, to be called the letter press letter. He was very enthusiastic, proposes an additional angle. He says, how about a clearinghouse to order new press books? Good thinking. P.S. How about profiles of collectors? Talk to Steve Corey tonight. What should we put into an introductory letter? Shall we call it the fine printing movement or merely, quote, a renewed interest in fine printing, unquote? Who can define it and who wants to? What about the division between the pro professional and amateur press? Can't the mere act of defining something change its character? August 4th, suggested departments for newsletter. One, great presses of the past. Two, my favorite press book. Three, collector profile. Four, printer profile. This is the one I like best. Five, the best book I ever printed. And number six is typography tips. Suggested title. Griffo, the newsletter of modern fine printing, named after Francesco Griffo, the designer of what might be considered the first truly modern type. August 5th. Or, how about calling it Champfleury, after Tory's study of language and letter forms, 1529. September 23rd. Very important evening. First meeting with Steve Corey, Linnea Gentry, George Ritchie. They are going to work with me on the fine printing newsletter to be called Letter Slash Press. George so down to earth, Steve enthusiastic, Linnea thoughtful, creative, good team. We divvied up the presses to be in touch with, started action, contacts for first issue. I feel like an old lady patroness doyenne. I still feel like an old lady. <laughs> so, uh, September 27th. Awoke at 5 a.m., sat up in bed with an idea for newsletter name. Fine print, or the fine print. No, the latter sounds too much like e engraving or etching.
So we four editors gathered around a card table in the evenings. Corey brought his typewriter, and we'd look at the books, argue heatedly about what should go in and what fine printing was, write news notes, compile bibliographic descriptions, and when the issue was done, we treated ourselves to a huge dinner at a Middle Eastern restaurant where we lounged on pillows, ate with our fingers, and drank over sweet peppermint tea. In January of 75, Andrew Hoyam's shop printed 2,000 copies of Volume 1, Number 1 of Fine Print, and we scattered them to the four winds, but mostly to the mailing list of the Book Club of California and to the typophiles. Dr. Bob Leslie personally mailed them to members, and he also gave us an unsolicited donation of $50. The first deposit I made to the account of fine print read as follows. Mrs. Gerald Kennedy, $16. Norman Strauss, $8. Ward Ritchie, $8. Albert Sparrison, $8. Terry Bellinger, $8. Thanks, Terry. <laughs> Claire Van Bleet, $8. K.K. Merker, $8. And my mother, Elda Sabadini Danola, $1,800. <laughs> I think her father, Umberto, would have approved. Additional funding came from a stroke of bookselling luck. I was also working at the time on selling a motley collection of rare books that had been accumulated by an old San Francisco family over a couple of generations. And they came to me one afternoon saying that they had discovered this just dusty old volume of, of old pictures on a desk, uh, on a shelf there, and, and a, a local bookseller had offered them $75 for it, and you know, what should they do with it? It was so big, it was taking up room. And uh, so I said, well, uh, you know, I'll have a look at it later. And so later I went over and I, it was great big thick leather cover. And I, I opened, up, opened it up and looked inside. And inside it said photographs of the Yosemite Carlton E. Watkins. And the 19th century date, 18, I don't remember now what it was. So... This, this dusty volume for which the bookseller had offered them $75 turned out to be very rare early photographs of the great pioneer California photographer Carlton E. Watkins. And I eventually sold the collection to the University of Arizona's new Center for the Study of Photography for $16,000 and collected what was to me at that time a very handsome commission. And uh, nowadays, I think if you found just one of those pictures for $16,000, you'd be doing very well. So that's a very good uh, lesson in the, what, happened, what has happened to the uh, collecting of photography in just the past 10 years. As I thought, 16000 was a fabulous sum then. Uh, so uh, anyway, with this uh, Watkins money under my belt, I was feeling somewhat more secure, and I bought a vintage number five Underwood typewriter at the flea market and set up an office for fine print in my basement next to the washing machine. Well, the response from all over to the 2,000 copies of fine print that had been scattered was astonishing in its warmth and enthusiasm. New subscribers said, quote, I've been waiting for years for someone to come up with a venture like yours. Unquote. Or, quote, I feel that fine print will fill a gap in the dissemination of information regarding printing and binding, unquote. Or as Barney Rosenthal so neatly put it, quote, it's a great idea and I'm sure it will bloom. By the end of 1976, we had 900 subscribers, which was quite respectable. As I explained in the beginning, 
My ideas for fine print were rather circumscribed. I was thinking in terms of a little information sheet. The great tradition of bookmaking journals like the Fleuron, the Colophon, the Dolphin was far removed from my expectations. But fortunately, it was an ever-present ideal in the minds of my co-editors and my printer. It was Andrew Hoyam who was responsible for establishing the graphic interest of the magazine. I love the elegance and distinction of the first issue with the classicism of John Peter's Casteller type and the zingy character of the rare gaudy ornament in the corner. But it was Andrew who realized that more graphic interest would be created by changing the typography of each issue. And he encouraged Gentry and Ritchie to exercise their creativity on the design. This graphic diversity became the hallmark of the magazine, and it is the source of my greatest joy and excitement in publishing. Well, as I say, my ideas were pretty small time about what fine print should be doing. Uh, and in October of 75, in fact, we were still calling ourselves a newsletter concerning the arts of the book. If I can find those. Number four, here we are. Uh, a newsletter, volume one, number four. A newsletter for the arts of the book. Uh, but we had gotten a little more ambitious. In a letter to subscribers that was enclosed with that, with that issue, dated October 17, 1975, we saw our basic aims are uh, to encourage the development and patronage of the book as art in all its related forms, and to foster the exchange of ideas among printers and other book artists collectors, booksellers, librarians, and all those of kindred spirit. Moreover, in all innocence, we claim the intention of becoming, quote, a comprehensive bibliographic record for the fine and private press of America. I can only smile when I read this. Wrestling with this unrealistic goal, we set up two press review sections, one called Recent Press Books to record all the books sent to fine print and another called Selected Press Books to single out those we felt to be particularly appealing. Moreover, we published this caveat at the beginning of the reviews. Quote, the comments given are each reviewer's personal opinion and should not be construed as typographic edicts, unquote. Protected by this statement, we attempted a few critical remarks. We decided that one book was overpriced. In fact, two of them were overpriced. That another had pedestrian topography. Uh, none of these critical reviews was signed, so it was indeed, despite our disclaimer, like a typographic edict from the editors of fine print. I'm embarrassed now at the insensitivity of this policy, but I'm happy to say that it didn't last long. By volume two, number two, we came upon a book that I felt instinctively was beyond the ken of fine print editors and that required the evaluation of someone with long experience in graphic arts and a broad knowledge of printing practices. That book was Granite and Cypress, a Robinson Jeffers poetry printed by William Everson, a famed California printer poet. The book was, was marked by some rather unusual features, including the deliberate offsetting of the type image on the back of the long horizontal pages. With trepidation, I decided to call upon the most experienced and respected printer scholar I could think of at that time, and that was your own Joseph Blumenthal. I knew and was proud of the fact that he subscribed to fine print, but still, I thought, as I called him on the telephone, why would he bother to write a review for a twerpy upstart magazine like fine print when he was used to really venerable journals like the Fleuron and the Colophon? Well, of course, I was wrong. Joe turned out to be extremely kind and responsive to our needs, and he immediately wrote a very sensitive and forward-looking review. 
in which he called the book a fine and enduring monument to the author and praised Everson's solution to the long black versos and called them revolutionary and wonderfully satisfying. That was the first serious, carefully considered review we had in fine print, and I realized immediately how wonderfully satisfying it can be to publish an informed, eloquent, typographic opinion. From then on, the review function was taken much more seriously and became, in fact, the central focus of the magazine, as was reflected in the name change. FP now became officially a review for the arts of the book, and the rather unassuming and bland idea of a mere newsletter was cast aside. Fine print was ready to assume responsibilities in the book world, and we entered a kind of brash adolescence. The effect of Joe's review was electrifying. Here was an Eastern printer commenting favorably on a Western book, <laughs> a book that many Western book people hated because it had, be, it had been, quote, ruined by Everson's offsetting technique. I really like that. Controversy, discussion, dissent, the East Coast talking to the West Coast. From then on, all the reviews were signed, and my greatest challenge became, and still is, to figure out who would be the most sensitive reviewer for any particular book. So the magazine continued to develop. The idea of theme issues seemed to grow naturally because the small size of the magazine permitted us to focus best on one subject at a time. And uh, we, in volume two, number two, we explore the subject of paper. And volume two, number one, uh, we had our first articles on book binding and our first illustrations in Offset, the bindings of Philip Smith. Not surprising, since Philip was then and probably still is the most uh, highly visible and interesting bookbinder in the world. And uh, <clears throat> meanwhile, however, we were wrestling with the production problems of the magazine. In the second year, we wanted to expand to 16 pages, but we had to keep our costs the same. So reluctantly, we left the safety of Hoyam's capable hands and cast about for another less expensive printer. I don't think Andrew was entirely unhappy either because printing FP was getting to be a quarterly burden and I suspect he wanted to concentrate on the books of his new press. Michael and Winifred Bixler, then of Boston, came to the rescue with what I believe is still one of the most handsome and harmonious issues of fine print ever done. A hand calligraphed banner in rust red on cream paper and Martyr Steig's deliciously harmonious Dante types in uninterrupted columns using paragraph marks rather than indentations to mark the paragraphs. Regrettably, however, we realized that we just were not equipped to deal with long-distance printing at that time. And moreover, we wanted to continue with the idea of having a different uh, topographer and a different designer for every issue. So I came up with the idea of offering a small honorarium to each designer, not really commensurate with the labor involved, but compensated by the fact that I, as publisher, would leave the designer with absolute untrammeled artistic license to design the issue as he or she saw fit. In effect, each issue then belonged to the designer as a showcase and vehicle for his or her graphic ideas. It worked wonderfully well. There seemed to be graphic talent without end all around me. Talented people like Wesley Tanner, who created a delicate banner with Fournier ornament and combined it with Scotch Roman ten-point, with nine-point capitals. Uh, he was very careful to point this out since he delighted in the typographic niceties. And Mariah Epps, who placed the title in an economical rectangle and added a logo, very neat and classical. 
The solid columns were broken only by paragraph marks, but they also almost broke the bank because, as I quickly learned, one error might mean resetting the entire column. Paragraph indentations are useful for more than just making separate thoughts. They leave you room to correct errors. We never did that again. So much for untrammeled artistic license. Jack Stoffaker gave us a, a classical uh, simplicity in Van Crimpton, Van Crimpton spectrum type relieved by ragged right margins, something he is noted for and employs masterfully. Steve Harvard of the Steinauer Press in Vermont gave us another fine calligraphed banner and introduced color to our pages. We didn't have color again then, I think, for about seven years after this. <laughs> so I think this is still one of the most handsome pages we ever published in fine print. Um, I was enjoying myself, casting my net as far as Louisiana, Dwight Agner, Seattle, uh, to Scott Walker and the now much noted calligrapher Tim Gervin, and New York, Ron Gordon, for creative design talent. In a, a rather neat stroke of genius, I think, I teamed up Sheila Waters, who did this beautiful calligraph banner, with Barry Mosier, who gave us very, very classical margins with a vengeance. Um, and I also returned home every once in a while to give my printer friends close at hand an opportunity, like Will Powers and George Ritchie, who used a sans serif type for the first and only time, raising howls from subscribers who find sans serif illegible as a text type. And I confess that I sometimes had my doubts too, but I tried to stick to my policy of artistic freedom for designers. After all, I reason, the heights to which a graphic designer can ascend when allowed freedom will more than compensate in the long run for the occasional descents into infelicitous design. I think this has proved to be right. With the growth and maturing of our editorial goals, we found we needed ever more room for longer, more significant articles and reviews. By then, one of our own editors, Linnea Gentry, had set up her own Amaranth Press, and she was printing FP on a Colts Armory Press. The best way to economize seemed to be to expand the page size. This is the first one we did in the larger format, as contrasted with the smaller format you can see here. Um, and uh, that way we, we were able to reduce the number of press runs as much as possible. Now that fine print is, is printed on a large rotary press, that consideration is no longer operative. But we still like the larger size because it allows us to have bigger, more generous illustrations. Some people prefer a smaller format for a magazine, easier to hold and read, and there are some faithful subscribers who, every time I, I meet them, never fail to tell me that they will never forgive me for changing the size. In any case, with the increased size and number of pages, changing the entire typographic design and layout with every issue soon became more than could be borne by any rational publisher or printer. Starting with volume six, number one, we launched uh, a standard internal design done by Linnea, Linnea Gentry in Van Crimpen's Spectrum Type, which we still find the most legible of types that are economical of space. With Spectrum, we can get 60 lines to the page. 
you probably don't realize how very much text you are getting for your money with FP. If we wanted to bulk it up, we could do so easily with a less tightly designed face. I think that is the genius of Van Krimpen, that he was able to design a, ta a, a type that retains that crisp legibility in such an economical design. However, I was loath to give up the fun I was having commissioning different designers and seeing what they would turn up with. So I decided I could still have my fun by commissioning a different cover design with every issue and leaving the inside the same. And that was the birth of the fine print cover, which has since resulted in some remarkable designs by such gra graphic luminaries as Gerard Unger, here, and this first one, of course, was by Mark Livingston, who is an editor of fine print, and uh, Gerard Unger, a well-known Dutch type designer, who d designs computer type. And uh, here we teamed up Sim Sumner Stone with, with paper marbler Chris Wyman. And eventually, Wyman also did his own cover, which I think is really remarkable, based on Indian, uh, Indian paper marbling technique. And uh, then we had uh, Sebastian Carter. And of course, we have Abe Lerner, who's sitting right here in the front row, did... Uh, a design uh, with Valenti Angelo's illustrations. And we had William Stewart, a San Francisco calligrapher, I think did one of the most striking cover designs we've ever had. And uh, Carol Blinn, of the, uh, one of the Pioneer Valley printers up in Massachusetts. Shelley Hoyt, San Francisco poet of, uh, printer of the uh, Blackstone Press. And, of course, the most recent one, which I, I was really thrilled with, is Lance Heide's uh, interpretation of maybe the book of the future. I don't know. Um, one of the most unusual covers, a, a color landscape by our printer Wesley Tanner, much to our surprise, gained recognition from the graphic arts establishment, winning a place in the AIGA cover show for 1983. And here it is. And while we are dwelling on the physical qualities of fine print, let me talk a bit about the paper we have used, because I believe paper is paramount. Forget the typographical niceties, the flashy covers. Printed on cheap paper, it is all for naught. It is as vain as putting truffles in cat food and serving it under glass. <laughs> Almost from the beginning, we were attracted to the fine printing qualities, pleasing texture, and archival qualities of the Mohawk papers, particularly superfine, first introduced to us by Michael Bixler in that splendid volume one, number one, which I showed you earlier. We were fortunate to have superfine at that time because we were facing the perils of dealing with a commercially obsolescent industrial process, letterpress printing, and most paper manufacturers were simply not willing or able to make papers for a vanishing market. The choices were not great. Most papers were hard-sized to provide the impermeable surface required for offset printing, in which the ink sits on the surface of the paper. Superfine was the only paper that permitted the metal type to penetrate the surface. However, once again, we were wrestling with production costs, striving to keep our quality high, but still keep the subscription price within the realm of what people expect to pay for a magazine. Let me say parenthetically, that people think nothing of paying the same price for a cheap 100-page paperback on mushy wood pulp paper, which I did pay $7.95 for this just yesterday in one of your fine 
Columbia uh, bookshops, uh, printed on a mushy wood pulp paper with type looking like it was set in a laundry by blind monkeys <laughs> who printed it on a steam shirt press. And if you doubt it, just come up and have a look, and I swear that description fits. But you see, because it's a magazine, you're not supposed to pay eight or nine dollars for it. You're only supposed to pay two or three. But we are trying to educate people. And uh, we're having an uphill battle, but I think we are succeeding in some degree. Anyway, wrestling with our, with our production costs, uh, we tried Mohawk Vellum for a while, a good paper, but not good for letterpress printing, especially as by then, fine print was being printed on a rotary press in which the impression could not be regulated as precisely as a Colts press. Fortunately, just about the time that Tanner and Powers, our printers, were going crazy trying to get an even impression on this unforgiving sheet, the folks at Mohawk saw the wisdom of servicing a small but creative and prestigious segment of the graphic arts community, letterpress printers, or fine printers, although the two terms are not always interchangeable, as we know. And they came up with Mohawk letterpress, a special paper with soft, unsized surface to accept the impression of metal type. And we've used it happily ever since, though not completely without problems, as you may read in our paper report on letterpress in the July 83 issue, the first time, to my knowledge, that a magazine has published an impartial report on the papers used for its own pages. We hope, incidentally, to do more such reports on the printing qualities and conservation qualities of various papers. The next one I'm thinking of doing is Gutenberg Laid, since I... I saw some very fine books printed on that, and I do hope it's archival because the books were really lovely, and I'd hate to think of their turning to powder within, uh, what? What shall we give it, John, maybe? Uh, 15? Is that what we're down to now? <laughs> well, I think we've covered the physical qualities of fine print pretty well. Let me re uh, return now to the editorial development of the magazine, which we left rather abruptly, I believe, with the editor in the basement next to the washing machine. I think I can chart our progress fairly quickly. The editor soon developed an allergic reaction to the lint of the dryer <laughs> and the dampness in the basement, and she was forced to graduate to the upper story of her home where fine print took possession of the small breakfast room next to the kitchen, not without complaints from her family. By uh, uh, 1977, Volume 3, it became evident that it would be impossible for her to have any help from fellow editors if they all had to work in such cramped quarters. A search was launched for a cheap office. The cheaper, the better, in the interest of not burdening the small circulation of the magazine with undue overheads. We found an office in an old medical building, an office that has been kindly described by a visiting journalist as, quote, two rooms, a closet or two, and a brief corridor, unquote. We stayed there until June of this past year when an unconscionable rent increase forced us out. I mean, there's a limit to what I'll pay for a corridor. So we are now comfortably ensconced in two large rooms which are divided into offices, plus a large hall and a large closet. But I don't regret the Spartan quarters of our first years. I think it had a lot to do with our survival. I also think, however, that physical environment has a big influence on work. As soon as we moved into an office, we stopped being, quote, the little woman's spare time hobby, unquote. <laughs> and <laughs> I've heard that. Were terms of, 
terms of, uh, of that kind so many times. The other one that I really loathe, please do not come up and say to me, my goodness, what a labor of love. Quote, <laughs> I don't want to hear that term ever again. And the editorial quality jumped by leaps and bounds as soon as we got into really an official workplace. We started on type, our regular feature of type history and criticism in April of 77. We covered Fleischmann's Antiqua and had a rare showing of civilité types, which incidentally almost went awry when Sam Hartz of Anskede, who much to our delight and amazement, loaned us a specimen of the original civilité cut by Robert Grandjean for Christophe Plantin in 1557, accidentally sent us the type European type high. Fortunately, Roger, Roger Levinson, one of the most respected Bay Area printers and teachers, saved the day by laboriously making ready and pulling a proof for us on his tiny Albion press, from which we then made a printing plate, American type high. In that same year, Abe Lerner introduced him, himself to fine print with a biting and thoughtful review of the AIGA show for 76. To that, he added pieces on Caxton and on the Gutenberg Bible. I realized that in Abe Lerner, I had the combination of a scholarly interest in printing history and the savvy of a man with long experience in commercial book design. He was to become the double-hatted, fine-print contributing editor and East Coast correspondent. Some of our most valuable and exciting reviews and articles have come about because of his thoughtful ideas and wide contacts in the book world. From then on, the editorial development of fine print has all been due to its uncanny ability to attract editors of uncommon talent. When I first met Charles Bigelow, he had a small press in a cluttered vine-covered bungalow in Portland. I knew he had been under the influence of Lloyd Reynolds, great calligraphic teacher and humanist at Reed College, but I hadn't realized how effectively that influence had taken with Chuck. Bigelow went on to teach topography at Rhode Island School of Design and eventually established his own studio for letter, letter form studies with Chris Holmes. And he is now known as a very distinguished MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Computer Science and Art at Stanford University. But he took over the, uh, as a type editor of fine print in 1980 and he led fine print into some stellar contributions to the history and critical evaluation of type design, with in-depth articles on new computer types like ITC, Zap Chancery, and Matthew Carter's Galliard, and studies of historical types like the types of Jan van Krimpen, extensively described by Walter Tracy, and thorough explanations of such startling new developments as the uh, Donald Knuth's Metafont, a program for designing type directly on the computer. In this way, we were able to keep FP forward-looking and not wallowing in nostalgia for the simpler processes of the past, but seeking to apply the great traditions of topography to artistry and creative bookmaking now and in the future by whatever means may be available to us. Bookbinding was another area in which I believe fine print has made a significant contribution, first under the editorial direction of Susan Spring Wilson, San Francisco bookbinder, and now under W. Thomas Taylor, noted, uh, noted Texas bookseller and patron of the book arts. Besides articles and reviews in bookbinding and related arts like paper marbling, we have in almost every issue a featured bookbinding in which an outstanding modern bookbinder describes in his or her own words the creative and craft processes that have gone into making a bookbinding. In addition to design bindings, we have covered edition bookbindings when the, the approach was unique enough to warrant it.
And as well, we did a restoration book binding of an incanabulum and an avant-garde book binding of a transparent book. I think that book binding is unique in lending itself to this kind of uh, self-descriptive approach uh, where the artist can actually talk about his own work and, and it's, it's intelligible. And I, I think the, the reason is that the craft, process are, the craft processes are so fascinating in bookbinding and they're so intimately connected to the creativity of the craftsman who is also an artist. So uh, I really think that uh, the featured bookbinding is a unique feature that we're very proud of and that is making a significant uh, record of you know, a bookbinding by Kirsten Tini Mura, who is a German bookbinder living in Japan. Uh, her husband is Japanese, and I think that some of the, the colorfulness uh, of the Japanese design together with the German precision makes a really stunning combination. And I, I just hope, I, I, we fully plan and hope that if, if things go as, as, we, as we wish, that we'll be able to do more color work. Of course, doing color for, for a, a print run of about 3,200 is, is really, it's almost insane. It's, it's, you know, you really shouldn't try to do color, I don't think, for, under most publishing uh, rules, you probably would not attempt to do color for that small a print run. But we're, we're doing it, and uh, we, we hope to continue. I'd like to say, I, I, would, I would like to be able to say that I have been a woman of such unusual prescience and high vision as to have single-handedly met all the challenges of fine print over the past 10 years. Unfortunately, or rather fortunately, the opposite is true. Most often it was my associates, my printers, editors, authors, and subscribers who had the vision of what fine print should be, and I followed breathlessly behind them like a small child clinging to a leash with an eager Great Dane at the other end. I'm eager to see where the Great Dane will drag me next. Thank you. Our speaker was much too kind to hold up a copy of a certain mere newsletter as an example of what printing can achieve if it really tries. <laughs> uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, your reward lies ahead of you in room 502 Butler, where there's not only the, alas, predictable usual by way of food and also wine and soft drinks, but also some interesting leftovers from Saturday's American Printing History Association conference, which this year we did not freeze. Those of you who were here two years ago remember what uh, frozen brie tastes like <laughs> when it's unfrozen, so it should be in fairly good shape. Uh, stand not on the order if you're going, ladies and gentlemen, but uh, off to 502 for conversation with the speaker.